If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. home for so long, I think it's fair to say that we all feel like we've watched everything there is to watch. Seeing as I'm not much of a binger and I'm a contrarian, I rarely find myself having devoured the newest show or documentary. I tend to seek things off of the beaten path. Even still, when I found myself enjoying a show about professional wrestlers, I was shocked. Dark Side of the Ring is like behind the music, but for professional wrestling. As someone who once dated someone obsessed with wrestling, as Emily can attest, I'm talking to the point of it affecting the relationship. I wasn't exactly stoked about diving into that world. Additionally, those few years with that guy were the only exposure I had to wrestling, so I wasn't familiar with the histories or stories. That aside, I cannot recommend that show enough. It has true crime elements, sometimes even murder, and it touches on the systemic issues of using people for their bodies to make a profit while not caring about their mental health. Josh, you and I got into it for a while. Do you have anything you'd like to share about Dark Side of the Ring? Not that it's an advertisement. Yeah, are they sponsoring this episode? No, but I just love it. It's just such a great, yeah, it's a Vice documentary show. Oh, and it's, uh, yeah. I think it's Canadian production. So it's Chris Jericho. You remember Chris oh, Jericho. Oh, yeah, I do. Everyone does. And he narrates it and he, I think he's producer on it. But it's uh, one of the most harrowing, scary, sad, and electrifying shows I've ever watched in my life. Wow, I'll yeah. definitely it watch is... it. I don't think I ever don't gasp at least once. Oh, a hundred times. <laughs> Where you you hear a detail or something happens and you're just like, <gasps> like I know I've seen some behind the, behind the scenes things and I know it gets crazy and I know some of the like marriages that went on and the affairs. So I'm excited. Yeah. Oh, and I yeah. love Vice documentary. It's so good. <sighs> God, the best reenactments in the biz. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that show. One wrestler who I hadn't seen before but stayed with me after watching was Butterbean, and he looks exactly as the name sounds. <laughs> well, Thumbbean would be more appropriate, but you get the idea. There wasn't a lot of separation from his head to the shoulders, not a big difference in measurement from his height to his waist. You may have seen him knock the crap out of Johnny Knoxville in the first Jackass movie. He was a hell of a fighter and wrestler and was surprisingly charming on the show, even if he was sharing a horrifying story about the brawl for all. Besides being built like a butterball ham that would kick your ass to the moon, Butterbean was known for dressing like an old-fashioned all-American boxer. Always shirtless, always bald, always wearing American flag shorts. He's iconic in his own right. I couldn't find a photo of Redmond resident Chris Gannon, but his lawyers agreed. His size, baldness, and American flag cowboy boots being worn with nothing but overalls did give him a bit of a Butterbean look. And it was the yelling of, hey, Butterbean, in Chris's direction that led to an altercation, which then led to a stabbing, which led to a man already well-known to police being arrested yet again. Today, I'll be telling the first of three stories surrounding Portland Street Kids and their connection to five murders. It was July 23, 2021, when Gregory Paul Wilson and a woman companion left Castle Rock, Washington, which is right at the base of Mount St. Helens, to make their way to Redmond, Oregon. It's unclear if Gregory was also attending the medical conference they were making the three-and-a-half-hour drive to, or if only his companion was attending, and he was just along for the ride. Many lives were changed that night, which all began with the super-logical extreme behavior of some college football fans— 
While getting drunk at the Tumble Inn Tavern in Redmond, local resident Chris Gannon, the Butterbean lookalike, was telling his friends in what was probably a loud, unprovoked conversation about his love for the Washington Huskies, the team for the University of Washington. That's when a different group of people, who were also attending the medical conference, entered the bar. Fatefully, one of them was wearing a shirt relating to the Cougars of Washington State University, the rival school of the Huskies. In a not-so-sober state of mind, Chris approached the group and verbalized his disdain for the Cougars. Before the argument could become heated or dangerous, the Cougar team decided to leave these locals alone and went back to the hotel. As they were coming back to their hotel, Gregory Wilson was outside and was informed of the interaction that had transpired at the tavern. After the group had gone to bed, preparing for their conference, Greg and another man, which it's also unclear if he knew that man from the group of conference goers or they were just friends otherwise, decided that they would go and get a drink, and they would do so at the Tumble Inn. I don't know if Greg had been informed as to what Chris looked like, but one could assume the group had said something like, and this large white bald guy in American flag boots and overalls got in our face about our college team kind of thing. So when Greg arrived at the tavern and saw a man fitting that description walking to a car, it would explain why Greg shouted out, Hey, Butterbean. There are conflicting stories regarding what happened next, but at that moment, the interaction became violent. One side reports that Chris then tackled Greg to the ground. Another account is that Chris's companions for the evening, Clint Holdbrook and Kyle Bates, had said something racist to Greg, which I can only assume would be the N-word. All four men were drunk, and Greg was the only person of color. What happened next is known only to those involved. But in the end, Chris, Clint, and Kyle were stabbed by Greg. When police reviewed all of the available security camera footage from the area, they couldn't find one that provided a view of the actual stabbing. What it did show was that at some point, assuming after the physical fight had ended, Greg was seen pulling out a small pocket knife, then following the three men around a corner of a building. Shortly after, a woman was seen running away from that area, screaming. The police arrived and arrested Greg, charging him with three counts of second-degree assault, three counts of menacing, and three counts of coercion, three counts of unlawful use of a weapon, and one count of second-degree disorderly conduct. The assaults counted as a Measure 11 crime, sending Greg to prison for 70 months minimum if found guilty. It would be up to the judge, if Greg were to be found guilty, if the charges would be concurrent or consecutive. Once in court, the defense would have to prove that what Greg said had happened was what happened, which was that the stabbings had been done in self-defense, hence his plea of not guilty. Police body cameras aided in the defense's case. While police spoke with the three men who had been attacked, one referenced Greg using the N-word. Greg's defense attorney pointed out that the case looked like the police were more focused on protecting their local guys, taking their word, and then trying to piece the evidence together in a way that proved their version, rather than letting the evidence lead them to the facts. She also gave her best Johnny Cochran by saying, he took out a knife to save his life. The prosecution said that the videos showed everything that happened. Greg chased the men down, and as far as biases were concerned, the prosecution said, just because I'm biased doesn't mean I'm wrong. Taking the stand, Chris, Clint, and Kyle all spoke about their experiences that night. The defense didn't hesitate to use their words against them. The small scar on Chris's arm, the only remnant from the knife fight, wasn't life-altering. The men didn't even go to the hospital after the attack. They went home and treated the cuts with superglue and band-aids. The next day, all three went on a river trip. The defense said this showed that the stabbings weren't conducive to being treated in the same severity as a Measure 11 crime. Then Greg Wilson took the stand in his own defense. He reminded the jury that everyone had been drunk and the men had escalated the interaction with racist language. But because he took the stand, it opened up a huge opportunity for the prosecution. They would now be allowed to talk about Greg's past, which definitely affected how the jury viewed his response to the racial slurs. The judge reminded the jury of their instructions regarding implicit bias. An example of implicit bias instructions comes from the United States District Courts of the Western District of Washington. Preliminary instruction to be given to the entire panel before jury selection. It is important that you discharge your duties without discrimination, meaning that bias regarding the race, color, religion, beliefs, national origin, sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender of the plaintiff, defendant, any witnesses, and the lawyers should play no part in the exercise of your judgment throughout the trial. Accordingly, during this voir dire and jury selection process, the lawyers may ask questions related to the issues of bias and unconscious bias. Instructions or not, it was hard for the jury to ignore the disturbing history of Gregory Wilson— 
a history that involved patricide, torture, and a mafia-like hit. Gregory Paul Wilson shares my birthday, (gasps) May 10th. Oh my God. But he was born in 1967. Like we so often find, there isn't much background information available for the people we'll be discussing today because they were houseless. So at some point by the 1990s, if not for years prior, Greg was living on the streets where he eventually crossed paths with Grant Stephen Charbonneau. Through their shared trauma and perhaps shared desire to be in control, by 1992, Grant and Greg were the heads of a secret organization. And we're talking really secret, as they were the only ones who knew about it. And the only ones in it? Because they were the (laughs) ones who had made it up. (laughs) Sounds like one of my schemes. Yeah, when you're eight. (laughs) Grant, 20 years old in 1992, had paired up with Greg and used their age and influence to convince the teens on Portland streets, or the newly dubbed street kids, that they were the leaders to follow. Grant went by XO, as in executive officer, and Greg was CO, commanding officer, and their leadership was not to be questioned. November is Youth Homeless Awareness Month. Different situations lead to children being homeless. I've had far too many students in classes that were either living in a small apartment with multiple families and didn't have space of their own, or they were living in their car, usually with a parent and perhaps some siblings. Those kids coming in and looking forward to a day with their friends and the safety of school certainly put my frustrations into perspective. How could I be annoyed about something like forgetting my lunch at home when the kid sitting next to me is elated to be having school lunch because it's their only consistent and hot meal of the day? Then there are the runaway kids that are so often dismissed. Kids, preteens, and teenagers that are living in difficult or even violent home situations who feel like their only option is to flee to the streets to escape abuse, drugs, or even being trafficked by their own family members. So it's not that these kids are striving for an edgy lifestyle. They're just trying to live. Now there are the kids that do want that lifestyle. Perhaps inspired by abuse in their home or just wanting control of their own lives, these kids take to the street, hoping the family that they can create with their other houseless youth would be more accepting of them than their own. These kids are often part of the LGBTQIA2S community and don't necessarily leave home on their own accord, but are forced out or feel they have to leave to survive. If anyone listening lives in or has been paying attention to Portland lately, you'll know we've not only always had houseless folks on our streets, but it has recently become an epidemic. The newest wave of people who have lost their homes comes more from our city allowing every big realtor corporation to swoop up and buy buildings and homes or properties where they can develop expensive housing and the prices are being jacked up because of it. Combine that with COVID, job losses, financial strains, and unsustainable rent costs— And it's no surprise that the 2022 Multnomah County count of houseless folks was at an estimated 5,228 people. Currently, Portland shelters can house 1,365 people. So for anyone who takes issue with people sleeping on their sidewalks, like Dean Weaver, the owner of Dizzy Dean's Donuts in Eugene, Oregon, who had a video go viral recently showing him throwing a bucket of water on a houseless woman who was sleeping outside his business when temperatures were nearly freezing, Make sure you understand the circumstances that would lead to someone being on that sidewalk. Don't worry, the police are looking into charges against Dean. He says that there was a fire that wasn't visible on the video that led to him throwing the water on her. That sounds logical. Fire is very hard to capture on video. It's like the moon. Not only is it a lack of space that leads to living on the street, but some shelters and organizations have certain rules and curfews and expectations that can be difficult for people struggling with mental health and addictions to manage. This is why there is a lot of anger towards Mayor Ted Wheeler for not only coming up with the great idea of making camps in city-approved areas, but making it illegal to sleep on sidewalks. This was discussed at a public forum recently, where he allowed the first 20 speakers to be realtors and reps for realtor corporations, per his request for them to be moved to the top of the list. Hopefully, the new housing helps those that need it, but criminalizing houselessness benefits no one. Of the over 5,000 people without a home in the Portland area, 38.5% struggle with mental health issues, 26% have physical disabilities, and 37.5% claim to struggle with addiction. These numbers can obviously overlap across people experiencing all three. People with financially successful jobs who don't have any kind of disability are struggling to buy gas and groceries. 
The food handout on the Monday before Thanksgiving this year had the Sunshine Division helping over 1,200 people, which was a new record. So it's not that hard to imagine that if you're working minimum wage, having your rent go up by 20% while you have children to care for, perhaps even with special needs of your own, or you have undiagnosed bipolar disorder or chronic physical pain that you turn to painkillers or other substances to maintain, and boom, you're on the street. Sadly, women and children are the highest growing groups of homeless people in the Portland area. While the story I'll be telling is one of violence, it's important to remember that houseless people are just that, people. Not everyone without a home is living in a tent on the street. Not every houseless person is jobless. Not every houseless person is struggling with mental health or addiction. They are people who need support, help, and services. For the details of this case, I used a controversial book, All God's Children. The information was helpful regarding the murders, but the opinion that every street kid is violent or wants to be in some sort of gang was pretty yucky. Speaking of yucky, this case is very difficult. I will be talking about torturous and horrendous murders. And I know I usually don't go into too much detail, but I feel that their stories are important and the severity matters. In the book, when the author hesitated to share those details, a detective said something that really struck me. He said that to say she was beaten wasn't the whole story, and therefore it wasn't the truth. So I want to tell the truth, and that means telling the whole story. For as long as I can remember, I have seen street kids in downtown Portland. Usually just a group of teenagers hanging out, sometimes busking, sometimes panhandling, usually just keeping to themselves. In Portland, the street kids scene started back in 1988. Punk music was inspiring mohawks and cool clothes. Video games and role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons were gaining popularity and allowed for an escape from everyday life. This was a different scene from the homeless kids of the early 80s. Here's horrible information about my city that I didn't know before. Being on the streets in the 1980s was almost strictly done by sex workers. And not just consenting sex workers, but trafficked children. Back then, kids as young as 10 years old would stand on street corners, even in broad daylight. And at one point, and this is according to the book, the availability of young boys for sex led to the nickname Boys Town. Yikes. Have you ever heard anything of that? I have not. Okay. I, I've looked into it and I'm trying to find, you know, I don't want to just go off this woman's word because it's very possible that the author like saw one newspaper clip. Sure. She's a little bit, she seems reactive in that way. But um, anyway, that was just really shocking to hear. While we have made progress from those days, we are starting to fall backwards. Recently, a 29-city sting found underage sex victims in Portland, and only Seattle had more victims than us. Things in the 80s and 90s started to change when more funding became available for youth shelters. This drove the traffickers out and provided space for the kids to create lives for themselves on their own terms. It was in 1992 that Portland became home to one of the first families of street kids— comprised of teenagers who lived on the street by choice. The family operated much like those recognized as a gang, but I guess because these were white kids, they're called a family. Like any social organization, there were rules and rankings. Once you were inducted into the family, you were given a title like brother or sister. There is something called fictive kin, which, to no one's surprise, has roots in racism. During the selling and trading of enslaved people, blood families were torn apart by trade, death, and other horrendous reasons. This led to older enslaved people supporting and caring for children that found themselves alone. Parental figures would become father, mother, and kids would be sisters and brothers. They created a new family to make up for the one that had been taken from them. This particular family started with the name The Company, and besides titles, they also had plenty of rules to be followed. Break any and there would be consequences. Some of the rules were, there would be no snitching, you were to respect the old-timers or the people who had been on the street or in the family longer than you, you were to never speak to the cops, be it to each other or outsiders, there was no usage of anyone's real name, there was to be no stealing between brothers and sisters, and no disclosing location of camps. Relationships could happen within the family, but they were to be heteronormative only, and if any of those rules were broken, it was made clear that punishment would be severe. Do you have any info on, like, the development of those rules? Like, why, like, the hetero heteronormative one through me? I can, right, because a lot of that population kids, yeah, fall the population that. is, tends to be people that fall on some sort of spectrum somewhere where it's like, I'm not, you know, be it from religion or whatever reason, you're out of your house. Mm -hmm. I think it depends on the group, and I think that's why this is 
like I want to make it clear that this story is more isolated because I think we're talking about like pretty extreme people that I don't know necessarily if they had like white supremacist views. It also makes me wonder if the like founders had had some sort of religion like a Christianity background. Oh, right. Right. Because that sounds a lot like rules that you would find in the church. Well, and I... I'll get to it, but, you know, I think also prison history and or just kind of that culture where it's like, don't be gay and don't be any of those other words that they would use for that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think it's more on that umbrella, which, yeah, it is surprising because you're like, wait, you have so many kids that have to leave home because of that. But I think that's just part of the nastiness of this group. In early 1992, Gregory Wilson and Grant Charbonneau found themselves hanging out in Pioneer Courthouse Square in downtown Portland. The square, as the family referred to it, is an open area also called Portland's Living Room, which opened in 1984. It has stairs that double as seating for events. That's also where you'll find Beer Fest, the Christmas tree lighting, I've danced a thriller as a zombie there, and someday I hope to attend the annual Tuba Christmas concert. It was also the central point for the family. Its location in the heart of the city and the 40,000 square feet of open space made it ideal for them to hang out and even do some panhandling. Neither Greg nor Grant were technically houseless. They were just older guys who were drawn to hanging out with the teenagers. It didn't take long for the 20-somethings to wield their power over the younger kids. Even though the family didn't have a specific leader, Greg and more so Grant were drawn to the position and they were soon bossing the teens around using them for favors, and even using them for sex. Greg was a minority in many ways when it came to the family. He was 25 years old, much older than most of his brothers and sisters. He was also a dark-skinned black man. I don't have the numbers for 1992, but in 2002, only 6% of street kids were black, so I'm sure the number was even lower a decade earlier. His family couldn't understand why he was wasting his time with Grant, or as they referred to him, the, quote, crazy white son of a bitch. Muscular and trying to portray a military background, Greg wore baggy pants and military boots. The neatly mustachioed man would show non-believers his military card and claim he had been a Navy SEAL. He looked fit, so it was pretty believable. Besides being known as CO, he was also referred to as Whisper due to his soft voice and secretive conversations with Grant, the XO. At the time, Grant was a pale 20-year-old with a scraggly beard. Before joining the family, he had lived with his grandmother in the St. John's area, which is a neighborhood in North Portland. He was familiar to some in the scene as he often drove his 1989 truck to a local shelter and would hang out outside of it to impress the teenagers. Psychologists would later say that Grant was suffering from a personality disorder that would lead him to, quote, floating into an illusionary world. As he spent more time downtown, he started to carry a three-foot steel rod as his staff. Talking to street kids, they would become enraptured by his stories of his martial arts skills, his tales of secret missions he had worked on in the past, and his newest adventure, which was through what he called the organization. Even though the kids didn't know what he was talking about, they didn't question him either, so he quickly gained dominance over them. On the few occasions anyone asked questions or tried to clarify what he was saying, Grant would fight them, physically or verbally. And who wants to fight the martial arts-trained, staff-carrying secret agent? The lack of pushback didn't mean the kids were buying everything he was selling. In fact, it was often the opposite. When Grant claimed to have escaped from Alcatraz, no one believed him as it had closed down 13 years before he was even born. Instead, the kids kind of found Grant's stories to be a source of entertainment. They'd let him indulge in storytelling and then laugh to themselves or with each other. They weren't interested in getting kicked out of the family over his weird lies. Little did the kids of the family know, but the coming weeks and months would devolve into what Grant would call the Rambo Games. When Grant wasn't being the leader of the secret organization, he had a house and a bed to go to. He would leave the square or camp and go home to his grandmother's, which wasn't far from his father's house on Lombard Street. Harold Charbonneau was 42 years old at the time. He was a military veteran who had suffered a double amputation of his legs. Going by Hal, he had a strained relationship with his son, Claiming to have approached his dad about their estrangement, Grant said his father, quote, made it quite obvious that he was happy the way things were. While Hal might have disagreed with Grant's lifestyle, Grant had his own issues with his dad. He told some of the street kids that his father had tried to drown him when he was only two years old. He was a heavy drinker and a smoker, so much so that the walls of his home were yellow. 
the businesses on Lombard knew how. He would come by often to greet his friends, enjoying getting out of the house. Even though he was an amputee, Grant made it clear Hal was not a man to be messed with. When talking to a kid about his dad, it was suggested that they mug him. Grant wished the kid luck. What kind of strength would the arms of a man who had been manually pushing himself in a wheelchair for like 20 years have? Grant had no doubt his father would knock anyone on their ass if they attempted any funny business. One of the kids that had been privy to the conversations about Hal and had been the one to suggest a mugging was Leon Michael Stanton. He had come to the family in the spring of 92. The Columbia River High School dropout was skinny and gangly, and he became enamored with Grant's charisma. Soon, Grant was taking Leon on rides around town in his truck. Not much later, Grant introduced Leon to the family. The 15-year-old didn't hesitate to show his commitment to them. He shaved his head into a mohawk, had an anarchy tattoo on his knee, and wore the acceptable fashion of khaki shorts and black high tops. Because of his build, he was dubbed Skinny Boy Fred. Even though he tried to pull off the don't-mess-with-me vibe, the teenager was threatening to no one. He bragged like Grant and Greg, only not about murders, just that his brain was fried because he had done so many drugs. It was some real I'm-a-cool-teenager stuff. Grant had chosen Leon as his confidant when it came to his dad. He would drive Leon past his father's ranch-style home, claiming that the house would be his once his dad died. He would complain about their relationship, his feelings towards him, and how, if he was just out of the way, they would all be able to use the house. Perhaps pushed by Grant or just wanting to make a good impression, Leon decided to take matters into his own hands. On May 1, 1992, Leon Stanton went to Hal Charbonneau's home. With him, he had a buffalo skinning knife. He crawled through an open bathroom window, went down the hall, and searched for Hal. He found him in one of the back bedrooms, and he was asleep, his wheelchair sitting next to the bed. According to court records, Leon stabbed Hal while he was laying down. The blood sprayed across the walls. After the initial stabbing, Leon went to the kitchen and dug around in the fridge looking for food and beer. After his intermission, he went back to the bedroom to check on Hal. He was still alive but writhing in a pool of blood. Leon went back to stabbing him, who was able to pull himself away enough to sit up and ask, Why are you doing this to me? Without answering, Leon put his hand over Hal's mouth and continued stabbing him. Leon left once again, then came back. This time it was Leon with the question, and he asked Hal, how being killed felt, and he said, it feels so cold. Leon continued stabbing. Finally, Hal died from blood loss. Leon helped himself to the five bucks in Hal's wallet and swiped his coin collection and a ring out of a drawer. A note related to this information from the book regarding the killing of Hal, Renee Denfield, the author, very casually mentions that Leon brought a friend with him, but there is no further discussion of who that would have been, so I can't confirm that that was the case. I'm also unable to find out how the police learned of Hal's murder. Perhaps some of the business people that had seen him frequently called in for a welfare check, or perhaps a family member was concerned. No matter the reason, police arrived at Hal's and quickly discovered his body in the bloody crime scene. They also found a shoe print left behind in the bathtub, presumably in the bathroom that had been used to access the home. It took two days for detectives to process the scene. For some unknown reason, they searched the crawl space and even dug up part of his yard for evidence. I don't believe that they thought he was some sort of serial killer or anything, but they maybe thought the murder weapon had been stashed or something. Again, the author didn't go into detail about that, and I could find no record of it. As with most homicides, detectives looked to those close or at least related to Hal, so eyes were quickly on Grant, the estranged son. He was happy to work with the police at the start. He even provided his own shoes for them to test against the recovered print. It wasn't a match. After that, he got a lawyer. Just as he had predicted to Leon, Grant was in possession of the home just a few weeks after Hal's murder. Not because it had been bequeathed to him, but because no one in the family claimed it. And in doing the math, no one wanted to bother with selling it. So Grant simply moved in and no one fought it. Showing his gratitude to his murderous minion, Leon was given a bedroom in the home, and he chose to live in the room that had been Hal's, the room that had never been cleaned and was still painted in Hal's blood. Leon wasn't alone. He brought his 16-year-old girlfriend, Skylar, who went by the street name Breeze. She wasn't as excited to be living in such a dark place. She claimed to have been permitted by her lawyer father to live on the street and that she was working towards emancipation from her parents. Hanging out in the bedroom, Leon then confessed he had killed Hal and claimed to have a fascination with killing. 
Breeze shrugged it off, thinking he was just showing off for Grant, and he was simply a psycho. The house soon opened to more kids. The entire family wasn't invited, but enough kids were there throughout the day that the house soon fell into disarray. Dogs were running around, shitting on the floor, and it wasn't being picked up. Sometimes jazzed up with onion or garlic powder, the family survived on popcorn almost exclusively. Grant was loving his newfound power by having a place to hang out. No one was talking to the police, and without evidence as to who the killer was, there was no connection to Grant. He even put on a front that he knew the killer was a drug dealer and he would be getting revenge. To reward the kids for their loyalty, he would gift them with coins from his father's stolen collection, keeping the silver dollars for himself. Now that his father was out of his life and he had a home of his own, Grant could get back to focusing on the mission of the organization. So he spent his days making weapons. From beer bottles, he made bombs he dubbed Alpha Bravo that he kept under the couch and in his truck. From a broomstick, he made a club. Using a glove, he inserted metal pieces at the knuckles to create an easy-to-hide weapon. From local shops, he procured spy supplies. As for skinny boy Fred, his reputation changed with the killing, and he became known as Blades. Not long after Hal's murder, a man named James Nelson, who also went by Highlander, came into town. Arriving after the murder, he realized Leon was holding the number three position with Grant, but he was willing to do what was needed to get in his good graces, including supposedly biting into a live pigeon he had caught while hanging out under the steel bridge. James Nelson would play a pivotal role in the family for years. More about him right after this short break. James Nelson was born in Tennessee in 1976. His life was a struggle from the womb. Due to his mother's drinking, he was born with fetal alcohol syndrome, which affected his learning and cognitive abilities. His parents were abusive, and by 13 years old, he was charged with theft and attempted burglary. Breaking his probation, he was sent to a group home. When he was 14, his first charges of rape. The claims came from two peers who also had cognitive disabilities. They both claimed James had lured them into a secluded area before he raped them. Any kind of treatment or rehabilitation or consequence was soon not a concern for him, as one of the girls later claimed that it hadn't been rape. There isn't any information on this case outside of the book, but it is concerning that a young girl with known cognitive issues could make such a claim and then have her mind changed. It's hard to imagine someone didn't talk to her in an attempt to change her statement be it out of embarrassment, not wanting to be ridiculed, not wanting to deal with the trial, or all of the horrible reasons people intimidate others to not report sexual assault, she had recanted and James was not charged. James didn't get off scot-free. He was sent to a juvenile detention center in Sacramento. Part of his rehabilitation involved sex abuser classes. It was clear the 14-year-old with fetal alcohol syndrome and a history of abuse against and at his hands was not engaged in the course. So, instead of finding a better fit or a more intensive treatment, he was dismissed from the class. From there, he was shuffled around from group home to group home until he finally ran away. In early 1992, he had heard about the street kids seen in Portland and made his way north. James followed in Grant's footsteps, spending his time in the square when he arrived in the area, about a month after Grant had appeared on the scene. He was quickly running his mouth about all of the things he had done, how bad of a guy he was, he claimed to have killed multiple people in multiple scenarios, but no one believed him. James looked up to Grant. Grant had been in the military and was a supposed secret agent. It was everything he was striving to become. The stories the men were telling were out there, and overall the kids weren't believing them, but they were starting to cause a change in the family's dynamic. These weren't just stories about being tough or surviving horrible circumstances. They were transforming daily interactions into a form of role-playing. As spring became summer, the family started playing what they called Rambo games. This mostly involved rumors being spread within the family about fellow members. The stories usually revolved around punishable offenses. One example surrounded a kid known as Coaster. He was a likable guy who had a girlfriend everyone knew about. But the rumor about Coaster was that his girlfriend was actually mentally disabled and he had kidnapped her. No one really reacted to the rumor because they knew it wasn't true. 
So to amp up the situation, James, a.k.a. Highlander, made the outrageous claim that Coaster had actually killed his sister four years prior. Luckily, Coaster wasn't harmed, but he was swiftly banned from the family. Coaster was smart enough to know the talk surrounding his supposed crimes was putting him in real danger, so he left the camp known as Checkpoint Charlie before XO or CO could find him. When Grant and Greg couldn't locate Coaster, they found another outlet for their anger, a houseless couple that happened to be in the same area. They weren't affiliated with the family, so the pair just started beating the man before stabbing him in the back and crushing his throat with Grant's metal staff. Amazingly, the man was able to get help and had an emergency tracheotomy save his life. The men were never charged with the attack. Later, someone reported they had seen Coaster walking near the freeway. Word of his location spread fast among the family and several members sought him out. Catching up to him, they brought him back to the camp and held him down so the sisters could alternate taking turns beating on him. In another strike of luck, Coaster was able to get away and he made his way to California. After learning Coaster was gone, the concerns about a supposedly kidnapped sex slave vanished. All of this was great news for James because it meant one more person that had been in the family longer was out of the way, and his place in the hierarchy moved up. The chaos only continued after the beating of Coaster. One girl, Angel, had been dating James Highlander. She was only 15 years old when on July 18th, she claimed to have been raped. Ecstatic to have any reason to start trouble, James and another family member went on a hunt for who they thought had raped Angel, eventually ending up at a camp that was home to a Mexican man. They found this out after they raided his space, stealing clothing and drugs. Paranoia set in as the family claimed to be terrified of Mexicans and expected the man to show up at any moment seeking retribution. Their fears came to a reality the following night when the man they robbed and some of his friends came to the family's camp. He had one demand. He just wanted his clothing back. Obsessed with the drama, the family couldn't give him his clothes. Instead, they ran around frantically, freaking out that a Mexican man was at their camp. Fed up with their buffoonery, the man just left and went back to his home. To celebrate their accomplishment, they partied around a bonfire. Michelle Woodall Largo was better known as Misty. In the summer of 1992, she had been in the Portland area somewhere between six months to a year after leaving her home of Flagstaff, Arizona, where she was listed as a missing runaway. While in Portland, she finished earning her diploma through a program for street kids. Every now and again, she would be in contact with her brother, but there isn't much known about the then 18-year-old. She wasn't liked in the family. In fact, she hadn't even been officially a part of it or allowed to stay at Checkpoint Charlie. The natural redhead with blue eyes, rosy skin, a rose tattoo on her ankle, and short boyish hair was not considered cool by any of the street kids. They all just kind of hated her. They would talk about her being fat, ugly, and having a big mouth. Her mouth was one of the biggest reasons she wasn't in the family. She cared not for abiding by the rules or what consequence her action may have brought. She loved to flirt with the guys, even if they had girlfriends, which didn't help her relationships with the girls of the camp, who had come to despise her. Though not an official member of the family, Misty had been closest with Coaster. Now that he was gone, the bullying towards her escalated. She didn't have his protection. The ugly and fat comments became slut, and it was rumored that she was sleeping around. On July 25th, hoping to gain any intel she might have as an outsider, Greg, a.k.a. C.O., a.k.a. Whisper, had sex with her. Greg's reasons hadn't been known to Misty until the next morning, and being used pissed her off. Heading to the square to get revenge, Misty started to say the kids' real names. She started to say their addresses, and basically tried to break every special little rule the gang had. Her outrage was just, but she didn't know how much danger she was putting herself in. When her behavior was run through the street kid rumor mill, the story of the raid on the Mexican man's camp had transformed into it being Misty who had stolen his drugs and clothes. It didn't matter that everyone knew that that wasn't true. Misty was now a wanted woman and was an integral part of the Rambo games. The family was searching for her to interrogate her and to make it clear that she was being removed from the group in any and every capacity. Once she paid the price for breaking the rules, they were going to force her to leave the city. By that evening, Grant said, just about everybody in the downtown community, all the street people were looking for her. And at midnight, she was found. It was Grant, XO, and James Highlander that caught up to her. Holding a knife to her throat, they forced her to walk back to Checkpoint Charlie. 
awaiting her, Grant's red pickup. Brought into the center of the camp, the kids surrounded Misty. Tinan, who had accompanied Grant on the Mexican man's raid, struck first, kicking her in the stomach. Fighting back, Misty escaped and made her way to a service road. It didn't take long for the kids to catch up to her. Once again, holding her at knife point, they took her to the camp. This time, they forced her into the truck and headed to Grant's house in St. John's. Seven family members went to the house, the house where Hal had been killed. XO Grant, CO Greg, Skylar, the girlfriend, Breeze, and four others began their interrogation of Misty. Starting out, they brought in one of Hal's wheelchairs that had been left in the house and forced her to sit in it. Sitting on her hands, she was warned that if she yelled or moved, she would be slapped. If she acted up more than that, they would beat her. Hoping to avoid any punishment for her rule-breaking, she begged to be released. She promised, with Coaster gone, she had nothing left for her in town. If she could leave the house, she would leave all of them alone forever. She would go straight to the bus and back to Arizona. The family didn't care. She had to pay the price. In full Rambo game mode, XO, CO, and Breeze were in character. They were unflinching as Misty, or the real version of the young girl, Michelle, cried and begged for mercy. But there would be no mercy given. Breeze and another unknown girl started the beating by slapping and punching Michelle while verbally assaulting her with, You slutty bitch. Hey, you bitch. And why'd you lie? You're such a tramp. Holding a broomstick, they said, This would hurt if I hit you along the side of the head. While riding high on the power trip, they amped up the humiliation by taking off Misty's shirt, then her bra, only to become angry with her because her body disgusted them so much. They threw a towel at her that she was forced to use to cover her exposed body. The beating continued. The glove with the metal inserts was used to slap her. The hits became punches. Hours into it, Michelle was too scared and too tired to even cry, but the pain was causing noises to escape that she couldn't control. Taking a break, the kids wheeled her into one of the bedrooms. As Michelle sat in a room alone in agony and hoping to be released, the guys were in the living room discussing who had or hadn't received oral sex from her. This conversation led to a few of the men going into the room with her. It's unknown if she was orally raped, but it was implied. And at some point during her torture, she was sodomized. On a break, the family cooked up some popcorn. All of the torture had made them hungry and tired, so as the sun came up, they told Michelle not to leave. She was slumped over the arm of the chair and not moving, so escape wasn't going to be an issue. Michelle slept for a few hours, as did the family members. Waking up, Michelle was probably hoping to receive the same fate as Coaster. She'd been beaten, now she could leave. But she wouldn't be so lucky. Upon waking up, the family decided Michelle was now their slave. While the men watched TV, the women gave Michelle demands. Bitch, vacuum the floor. Bitch, do the dishes. Bitch, pick up the dog poop, which she was forced to do with her bare hands. When she finally finished her punishments, she was allowed to sit on the couch, but she had to cross her arms over her exposed breasts and had to stare at the ceiling as to not make eye contact with anyone. Around noon, Grant needed to leave the house. Some of the kids joined him to get fresh air. Skylar, Breeze, also went with. She had learned that the guys were planning on killing Misty, and she didn't want to be part of that. So Grant dropped her off and picked up his favorite little killer, Leon. Back at the house, Misty was once again put in the wheelchair and her hands were tied with cords. What Skylar had heard was right. The plan was now to kill Michelle, although there wasn't really a plan of how to kill her. Their first idea was to poison Michelle. Making their favorite meal of popcorn, they added extra salt to make her thirsty. Then they crushed up a nitroglycerin pill they had found in Hal's medicine cabinet and put it in a glass of water. Forcing her to drink it, they hoped that she would have a bad reaction, maybe even have a heart attack. But that didn't happen. Unless Michelle had had a heart issue, specifically on the right side of her heart, she wouldn't have experienced much more than a headache after drinking the pill. If she had had a heart condition, she would have died. The men were frustrated she didn't suffer from the heart attack they had anticipated. On to plan B. This time, a family member grabbed a trash bag, put it over Michelle's head, and tightened it around her neck for five minutes. Be it that the grip wasn't tight enough or there was a hole somewhere in the bag, Michelle was still breathing and wouldn't die. As she became more disoriented, the kids became more frustrated. Spotting speaker wire on a large spool, some was cut off and they took turns strangling her with the wire. Standing behind the chair, some would even put their foot on her back for leverage as they pulled. This went on and off for about 10 minutes. 
The patience of the family was wearing thin. As they continued taking turns strangling her, they would check to see if she was breathing or getting cold. She wasn't cold, and she was breathing. Their rage grew. Fed up, one family member approached her in the chair and punched her in the throat, then in the sternum. In response, she, quote, gurgled and choked and stopped breathing. After 36 hours of torture, Melissa was at least free from the pain they were inflicting. That's horrific. I like that they can't even properly kill someone, though. Like, how many people does it take? And especially when all of them have spent the summer bragging about how they kill people. Oh, I'm so tough. I'm a martial arts. I'm a murderer. I've done all this stuff. And then it shows the immaturity level. I think yes. like they're obviously scary. Well, and they're, they're scary people. They're very young. They are immature because they're teenagers. Right. Most of them are quite underage. And so it's like, yeah, you don't really even have the basic concept of what that, you know, I don't think I knew you had to strangle someone for a long time. Right. Until I was older. Exactly. So, yeah, it speaks to the immaturity and to just uh, the actual plan, you know, when the reality isn't just snap of the fingers, you know. Looking to their mighty leaders, it was assumed XO and CO would put their military and or spy work to the test in helping to clean up the crime scene and disposing of Michelle's body. How did that work out? Well, they had the kids wipe Michelle's body down with wet washcloths before scattering baby powder on the floor. What? That was their cleanup. Like, what was the baby powder to do? Like, make it smell better? I guess. What the fuck? That's how you like you find out where the mice are living is right. put baby powder on the ground. Like, <laughs> and again, guys. and again, it just speaks to. Uh, you know what that reminds me of? Your case where the guy tried to clean up with the bottle of Febreze. Oh, yeah. Like, come on. Yeah. But again, yeah, just that basic understanding of uh, anything. You know, maybe this speaks to their cognitive skills and their yeah. age and drug use. Yeah. So many things. Even though she was dead, the torture of Michelle did not end with her murder. Leon, remember the one fascinated by murder, used his knife to gouge chunks of Michelle's flesh off of her body and cut a hole in her belly. Grant later said Leon then did the eye socket thing, removing Michelle's eyes with the knife. Grant joined in the mutilation, getting a splitting maul, or an axe specifically made for splitting wood. He struck her in the head at least once, possibly twice, saying that her head popped like a watermelon. He and another member then stabbed her in the heart before carving an XO in her chest. Finding a sheet of plastic, they laid her body in it, rolled it up, and put her in the bed of the truck. Finding a pipe under a railroad in an industrial area, Leon and Grant pushed Melissa's body into it and went back to the house where they did some laundry. The stories of XO and CO's organization had infiltrated the family, Impressing them was more of a concern than whatever had happened to that annoying girl. No one that was involved or had heard of the murder reported it. They knew it was the price to pay if you didn't play by the rules. Fair was fair. Not even those who had participated in the torture killings seemed shaken by their actions. While Misty had stopped showing up for her education program, the transient nature of the street kid lifestyle led to a lack of concern. It's not that no one cared, but it's simply too difficult to keep track of every kid that comes and goes. She didn't have any friends left in Portland and was already considered a runaway in Arizona, so no one was looking for her. For a group of guys that loved bragging about killing and being tough, no one was talking about what they had done to Misty. That didn't keep paranoia from creeping into the camp. Grant especially had grown concerned over one kid in particular, Leon. Not only was he present for and had participated in killing Misty, but he had killed Grant's dad in the location that was now the home to multiple murders. How could he trust Leon wouldn't say anything, especially if the cops put any pressure on him? It was official. Leon was now a liability. Next week, I'll be telling the continuing story of Leon, Grant, and the family. Will Leon, already a killer himself, be the target of another homicide in the family? Will Grant and Greg face legal consequences for their Manson-like order to kill? Oof. That's dark. Very. I. It's, you know, it's, gangs themselves are scary. Yeah. Uh, there's something about this that's just even more so. Like, I don't know what it is. Just this, dis- they, they have these strict rules. They disregard government rules yeah that's interesting Well, because any gang or any group like this is not that much different than a cult 
Correct. You know, There's and so leaders. you have people that are stuck in it. You have people that are choosing to be in it. You have this hierarchy. I uh, think one of the things that I find so frightening is you could be there and have a good position and have trust from like the people leading it. And then you piss the wrong person off and yeah. all of a sudden they make up whatever they want and you're out. And not even like with Coaster, they just kind of were bored. Yeah. They were like, oh, yeah, that's let's say frightening. That. So there's it's like very this scary. level of fear that everyone must have. Yeah. And it makes me think that since, and I am no houseless expert at all, like I recognize that there is a whole multi layered universe in that world that I am unaware of. Right. But knowing, you know, a lot of kids leave because it's abusive or because they have mental health that, you know, isn't conducive to the family they have. And so they leave, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and anytime you, when you're a child and you don't have control, you seek it out as you get older. That's mm -hmm. just, even when you're a kid, you're still seeking it out. And so it's like, it's so fascinating that, it's like, I got to leave this control because it doesn't fit what I'm needing. And then to fall in and or want to lead something that's all about like major control, control right. to the point of like death. It's total compensation. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm sure there are books that psychiatrists have written on this kind of subject. Oh, but, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it is fascinating, but so scary. Yeah. Yeah. And just um, the predatory nature that Grant and Greg would, you know, being older, that they would want to be hanging at like any time a 22 25 20 year old wants to hang out with, with a, a 15, teenager 16 year old well if you think about it in the way where they're spinning these tales where somebody who's 30 years old is not going to believe that exactly they have this captive audience that even if they don't fully believe them they still kind of do you know how kids are mm -hmm. or you're naturally just like oh i'm not going to rock the boat you're older right just by default so it's like the fact that they whatever capability they have or wherever they are coming from the fact that they were like able to see where they could be the most predatory. Absolutely. Like, I mean, that's, yeah, they're, they're not going to get sex from, yeah, a 30 year old houseless woman. Right. She's trying to she's live her the, life and survive. And she's seen the world and she knows these kinds right. of scams. Right. But you show up and you've got a 16 year old and you're 25 and you're, oh, I've traveled the world. I'm a Navy SEAL. I'm a murderer. I'm a black belt. I'm a whatever. It also kind of puts in perspective, like, Houseless people, I feel like the ones I have interacted with, there is kind of a community, right? Mm -hmm. Where they some of them look out for others. Absolutely. And, but there is this level of fear that they must have from these bands or groups that are... Well, and individuals. I never really thought about it. I mean, I've, I've seen documentaries and stuff where, yeah, it's the people are talking about how it's like every night. And and, and I'm so sorry, I'm blanking her name right now um, when I covered the case in Seattle. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and she was saying that you don't have a peaceful night's sleep on the street community right. or not you have your weapons you're protecting yourself there's always someone out there yeah whether even if you have a group well even if i live with my family in a house someone could break in and, right. and harm me right we let can alone, lock our door but that's not going to stop someone who wants to get in exactly so let alone being on a tent mm -hmm. or in a tent on the street and you don't have that protection even if you have like a family or a, a support group or anything like that yeah so it it is terrifying and uh and it is so complicated and i feel like those stories aren't heard enough about you know just the everyday person no, i think it's yeah. easy for people to paint this picture and go oh well of course these people were crazy and killing each other they're these homeless monster you know the well, I, I, image you're fed uh, i've seen a, an uptick in violence against houseless and homeless yeah. people like yeah. Uh, I was there was a case I couldn't believe just some teenagers I don't know if they were I don't think they were street kids I think they were just but they beat up and killed a homeless man on the street and that happened in Eugene a few years ago like it's very frightening I, well and it's a lot of like societal portrayal back when I was a kid and this wasn't my parents this was just kind of society like oh you know those homeless you know drunk guy on the street he can't get his stuff together that kind of thing and so they're they're never painted as an individual oh no absolutely and, not and i've grown up with the fear of of men in general right but like homeless men too yeah and it it takes everything in me when i'm like say downtown to not cross the street right there's some just because of a, a natural fear i've i have from growing up in this culture you yeah know? And and so it's like 
you rarely, even on the news, you don't really see like, you know, this person and here's their story. When they talk about homeless, they just show like a pile of tents somewhere. Well, and sadly. You know? So it's like this, con- this cohesive thing. Like they're all just this one thing. So who cares if I go out and beat one to death or stat? You, you think even, the cops are going to spend time on that? Even when the media does want to try and actually talk to people they're not always given names they might not know names like in this situation yeah. they have their yeah. street names uh and it's hard to find photographs and i mm-hmm. we we all the time we get requests from people to be hey share my family member who's missing yeah. yeah with very few photos you know i just saw a woman post in a missing group on facebook uh about her sister and she had no recent photos really to offer she had a great description and somebody thinks they may have saw her right but it's like already at a disadvantage, yeah, exactly. even if you have the best intentions. Exactly. And uh, that's why those kids, if you're if you have that fascination, like Leon, he was only 15 and you're looking for an easy target. I mean, besides a sex worker, a houseless person. Right. There's no one. No one's, no one's going to miss them. It's like, you know, that's what they think. Misty least. not going back to her class. Well, they can't. I mean, I worked in a mainstream school and we would have kids that would just not show up and you, there's nothing you can do because it was just a very, we had like a 50% sure. turnover rate. And there's like an automatic phone call that goes to, if they yeah, have a home. Yeah, but that's it. Right. I know. What can I do? I can only assume the best that that kid went to another school. I know. And so when you're talking about programs for kids on the street, like, of course that turnover is going to be so high. It's all set up for, to fail, but they're all trying their best too. Yeah. And there's... I mean, there is I, a I don't reason. know what that answer is. I don't know if there's some sort of, you know. But there's a reason so many of our cases involve people in these types of situations, right. whether homeless or doing sex work or have a foster family. You know, right. there are so many situations where they're easy targets. Yeah. And it's really scary. And well, very and sad. and I, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the other kids, because even Leon who broke into someone's house and brutally murdered this man, murdered Hal and did all that. But then it's also like, he's just 15. Who knows what kind of either mental space he's in, mental health wise or actual ability wise. I have a really hard time with that. Like I, I get it to an extent. I understand like people can have real shitty upbringings, not be cared for, have learning disabilities, what have you. But which doesn't equal violence, but I'm exactly. just saying, That's I'm saying I'm... the co- the control, the coercive control of Grant combined with all that. Well, there's a reason you know? that type of kid find themselves in exactly. cults. Yeah. Like they are looking for that relationship. They're looking for what they think yeah. is uh, love no matter what. And they're willing to put maybe their own morals behind them yeah. if they're going to please someone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, that I get. And it's definitely we see that throughout history with cults and preying upon teenagers. It right. is huge um and i'm just saying the combination of those things like you know it's like the whole he who i will not name the famous rapper right now that's getting way too much attention it's just like yeah you can say he has mental health issues i do too i don't like nazis like (laughs) so that's not to say that anyone like oh because they're on the street or because they have mental health or because they have cognitive issues but it's it's interesting the combination of those things with someone who is you know acting so powerful or like i'm this amazing secret agent man but so. and i think a lot of people understand that too because one of my patreon episodes that's coming up i talk a lot about uh, a killer who was able to influence someone else to do it too mm. and that person had some disadvantages in life that contributed to why they were yeah so willing to do that so i think it's very well known in like law enforcement and authorities so it's it's interesting how they tr- I'm interested to hear how this case is uh, unfolding and how if people get some sort of consequence, what have you, that isn't like gang violence. But yeah, I don't know you anything about this. I will I'll have to wait with everyone else. How dare you? Morning. I'm, I'm adopted. 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 Just to remind you in the mirror. It's the only I am adopted. <laughs> the only interesting thing about me. 
Oh yeah. my God, Alicia. And that was closed mouth Ooh. and leaned into myself away from the microphone. Ooh, I'm a so little imagine. nauseous with that one. That was it's okay. juicy. No, it's just it's just because I'm hydrated. It was like, uh, oh, sorry. Pulled pork? <laughs> porridge. It's, it was like porridge or something. <laughs> Pulled pork. I don't, everything sounds like. You know, yanked. that burp sounded like pulled pork sandwich. I yanked feel like pork. I'm pregnant right now because everything Ew. sounds disgusting. <laughs> I'm not pregnant. It's Could impossible. No. Could you be? Oh my God. No. <gasps> Who been squirting in you? <laughs> just t- girl talk. <laughs> <laughs> it was just that turkey baster incident on Thanksgiving. Ooh. Oh my God. You know, Hallmark movie names have gotten too long. There was one on this morning that was like, Time to return home to Christmas for Christmas time. Oh my God, no. It's like, it used to just be like, winter love. Speaking of, did you guys watch Falling for Christmas? We only got like 20 minutes into it. Oh my God, I actually watched it without was my that, phone. Was that the Lindsay, the yeah. Lindsay Lohan Chloe one? Chloe yeah. started it with me and then she's like, Mom, can I go call Dad? I'm like, sure. And can she, I literally do anything else She went in this? her room, called Dad and fell asleep. And I, meanwhile, watched the entire thing. And I don't even like Christmas movies. You know what annoyed Chloe is I predicted everything and she gets really mad when I do that. Oh. I go, now watch, she's going to X, Y, Z. And she's like, mom, God. And then I forget and I'm like, okay, I won't do it. And then I do it on accident. <laughs> so when it, when she woke up, I'm like, well, I guessed everything, right? <laughs> Topo Gijo. I mean, I got it. It was not okay, a hard I'll concept. Get you a medal. It's a legal document. <laughs> is that right? So by clause, it was like a, the like clause a, in the contract. Like one of his pets or something? Oh, my God. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm just kidding, guys. I got you. I'm stupid. I don't even know what TikTok is. What's a TikTok Dumbo? Is that something? Ah, read them. Yes. <gasps> the wrestling problems with that boyfriend, was it because, like, you like Stone Cold Steve Austin? He was into The Undertaker? I mean, I was into The Undertaker and The Rock. <laughs> you smell what, what The Rock is it? cooking? Generation it- X. You hear me, Jim? I'm coming for you, brother. <laughs> I'm going to meet you at the Pontiac Silverdome. Oh, my God. That was really good. With the gym, the Slim Jims. <laughs> Got to snap into it. Snap into a Slim Jim. Oh, yeah. Dangerous breed. Dangerous breed. Crime. Cons. Cats. Everything I've ever wanted. So yeah. many cats. And he's like, these are all my babies, my hundred cats. I breed these Persian yeah. cats to sell. Do you know my stepmom's mother used to breed Persian cats? Of course I do. I had a Persian named Pete Rose. He was white and he had a <laughs> blue eye. And a, and Pete a Rose as eye. in like the gambling? Yep. Because my stepdad loves Pete Rose. We had like signed pictures of him all over the house. I mean, you never fail every time you're here. One little nugget slips out of your little stink wrinkle. I wouldn't have decorated with Pete Rose. I would have been like <laughs> A-Rod, probably. <laughs> Ken Griffey. We had yeah. some of those. Fernando Valenzuela for me. What is he, a Dodger? I think so. I don't know what he I did. don't know. He hit the ball. <laughs> well, I saw a Dodger game once. Okay. My head, Cracker Jack. Oh, I love Cracker Jack. Thank you. Back to business. I also once saw an NFL game. Well, it was in like the year 2000. In the year 2000. <laughs> Anyways, go on. <laughs> I just like to tell d- bad stories and I did it twice. Are you mocking it, me? Is and that you do why? it great. Oh, no. What? No, he's, he's just bad. He's I'm just talking about sports. Nuggets of history, Emily history. I like sports. I have considered just starting a rambling diary blog of my please. life. Please. Oh, my gosh. Please. <laughs> and then write it into a memoir and then sell it to HBO. Please. <laughs> So boring for like a solid 10 years. No, I think you're confused on like stuff. <laughs> it's never boring. Take a breath. I think yeah. slow down a little bit. I know. I get so. Well, since you know everything. <laughs> 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 Fucking know it all. I don't know why. Once my engine gets going, I'm just like my heart races and my breath. We know you know, okay? Gosh. You don't have to rub it in. <laughs> Golly. I'm just going to exploit Josh's joke until it's not funny. <laughs> When police reviewed all of the available security cameras, cameras, that's camera and footage together. Now you're going to drop some bomb that you had a secret so organization. Guys, I was actually <laughs> in a gang. We were actually a dance gang. We fought by dancing. When dance you're a shark, guy. you're a shark all the way. From my first cigarette to your last dying day. Wow. That sounds like scary stuff. <laughs> I'm glad you made it out alive.
It's the fuck up police. <laughs> Susan or Sally. Oh, you've Susan had your has fuck left up. the building. <laughs> She's dead. I can't come to the phone right now because I'm dead. Wait, what's the Taylor Swift? <laughs> what were the what were the S's? You say the S's at the end of Oh, two S. It's uh two spirit. It's uh Indigenous American. Oh, I didn't oh. know that. Here we go. Two-spirit is a modern pan-Indian umbrella term used by some indigenous North Americans to describe native people in their communities who fulfill a traditional third gender ceremony and social role in their cultures. Slow down just a little bit. I know. I know. I think I'm just, oh, well, you knew. You knew. She knew it. I'm like that. It's just like, oh, I'm just noticing like it's hard on these titties to move around. And... These titties make it hard. Yeah, it's a lot of weight for my lungs sure to do. move. Missoula, Montana. That's not the Midwest. Missoula, Jamaica. Ooh, I want to take you. Bermuda, Bahama. Come, come on, on to Omaha. Omaha. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be cool if they weren't holding it in the worst place on planet Earth. Nevada. I'm like, he lost it in a copy machine. He accidentally got in the cheese grinder. <gasps> like, all sorts of stories. I don't even know how he lost it. Wow. Maybe he was just born without it. I don't even know. Maybe he's born without it. Grant had no doubts his father would knock anyone on their ass if they attempted any funny business. Fun business. How dare you? How <laughs> dare you? I heard it. How too. We all heard it. We all heard it. No more funny business. No more funny business. As with the homicides. Mm-mm. The what? They didn't. That didn't keep paranoia from. Que- Weeping in. Weeping in. So I queep. Yeah, <laughs> just weeping on the down low. So I queef? <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls.